Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charlotte Steady. I'm an assistant professor of humanities at Singapore Management University. In this episode, we are going to be talking about something a little bit different from the topics that we usually cover in this podcast. Today, we are looking into the history of the Cold War, more specifically, the history of diplomatic relations between China and Indonesia in the lead-up of the alleged communist coup attempt of 30 September 1965, also known as G30SPKI. Throughout the New Order, there were allegations that communist China was behind the Indonesian Communist Party's plot to overthrow Sukarno's government. In the chaos that followed, anti-China and anti-Chinese sentiments erupted, and diplomatic ties between China and Indonesia were severed in 1967, not to be officially resumed again until 1990. In the midst of all the high political drama, Indonesia's ethnic Chinese population was caught in the middle as suspected communist sympathizers whose national loyalties were questioned. There is still so much that is unknown about China-Indonesia relations during the Cold War, and in particular, China's role in the pivotal events of the 30th September movement. For decades, conspiracy theories filled gaps left by the lack of verifiable information. However, in a new book titled Migration in the Time of Revolution, China, Indonesia, and the Cold War, published by Cornell University Press, Tamo Cho, an assistant professor of history at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, analyzes the true nature of China's involvement in the immediate periods leading up to 30 September 1965. Using materials such as the then-declassified archives of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Tamo pieces together the movements of various Chinese and Indonesian actors that contributed to the diplomatic and political dynamics at the time. She also demonstrates how state-to-state -state diplomacy was influenced by transnational ethnic ties and the daily social and political practices of the ethnic Chinese. In this episode, I talk to Talmo about the history of Sino-Indonesian relations during the Cold War and the place of the ethnic Chinese in this complicated dynamics. Talmo Cho, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you, Charlotte, for inviting me. Oh, I'm so excited uh, for today's topic because, as you know, this is a topic that is quite close to my heart. Um, and I'm super excited as well, particularly because of the release of your book uh, recently, both in English oh. and in Indonesian. So congratulations for that. Thank you, Charlotte. And thanks for serving as the chair for my uh, book launch at the Singapore National Library. Uh, it was a pleasure. Your book covers the complicated history of China-Indonesia relations uh, during that tumultuous period of the, of the late 1950s and, and mid, mid, to the mid-1960s, um, especially, of course, in the lead-up to the alleged communist coup uh, that we know as the 30th right. September movement in 1965. Uh, and right. I'm, I'm really excited to get started to talk about that. But first mm -hmm. of all, for the benefit of our listeners who may not know very much about the history of this period, mm -hmm. may I ask you to start by setting the scene a bit about Sino-Indonesian relations um, at that time right. uh, since Indonesia's independence uh, until 1965 uh, and also what some of the key issues of the time were. 
Right, right. I'm just going to give an overall of the contour of Sino-Indonesia relations from the late 1940s to up to 1967. So it's basically it's high drama bilateral diplomacy. I feel like it's good material for an HBO TV series. <laughs> lots of unexpected twists and turns, lots of charismatic figures. Um, so here I'm just going to focus on three key moments. So first is 1955 in Bandung, right? That's the first Afro-Asian conference. Uh, lots of journalists, artists, intellectual flashlights. And here we have the charismatic Sokarno serving as the host. And we have the equally charismatic uh, Zhou Enlai, who is the Chinese prime minister. And he charmed many leaders from Afro-Asian countries who are kind of suspicious of communist China's intention. And he emphasized China's peaceful, um, basically peaceful purposes in during the Cold War. So China, Indonesia, two of the world's most populous nations. And in 1955, kind of representing the pioneers um, you know, of the formerly colonized world. And what do they want in the Cold War? They want autonomy. They want independence. They were previously invisible and voiceless, and now they want to be vocal and they want to be visible, right? And then let's just fast forward seven years into 1962, and this moment is in Jakarta. So that's the game of the new emerging forces. So the idea of em new emerging forces, some of our uh, listeners might be familiar with. This is a brainchild of Sokarno. Basically, he used this concept as opposed to old established forces and this idea gained currency during Confrontasi, which was Indonesia's militarized opposition to the formation of Malaysia. And Indonesia hold this conference, uh, hold this game of new emerging forces because it was suspended uh, by the Indo uh, International Olympic Committee. So this event, kind of symbolized overall radicalization of Indonesia's domestic politics and international foreign policy. And interestingly, there was kind of a synchronized radicalization in China, meaning China shifting its foreign policy from seeking peaceful accommodation to opposition against both superpower, that is uh, the United States and the Soviet Union at the same time. So that kind of set a stone for the failure in 1965, so when China and Indonesia tried to hold a second Bandung conference to re revive this tie among uh, newly independent country, it failed spectacularly, uh, which indicate how isolated both China and Indonesia were as their brand of militant anti-imperialism uh, was no longer popular, it was no longer acceptable among other uh, third world nations. And last but not the least, I guess the climax of this bilateral saga will be the Gay Tico Blue S, so the September 30th movement right. in 1965. So many of our listeners will be familiar with the Soharto regime's propaganda movie, the betrayal of the PKI, the eerie background music. Um, some of my friends told me that they still feel the hair standing on their back while listening to that I remember music. having to watch uh, that, that film, of course, as many, um, you know, New Order era school children at that time had to watch it, of course, on the 30th of September every year. Right, right every year, right? So you probably remember, Charlotte, the scene, the Chinese doctors were like practicing acupuncture, but it's hooked to like a electric 
kind of like with electric shocks. Right. Press yes. So carnal. And the doctor was uh, basically saying to a very like shock, grave looking, I did with the head of the Indonesian Communist Party saying that so carnal's health, con- health condition was quick, critically dangerous. And that was presented as the trigger for the Indonesian Communist Party to make attempt to stage a coup d'etat, right? And some of our other listeners might know the film The Year of Living Dangerously. Yes, so with the Mel Gibson. Yes, Mel Gibson. So there was a scene, right? So Mel Gibson was playing this uh, Australian journalist, and he was told by his lover, right, this uh, British intelligence officer played by Sigourney Weaver, as, and uh, um, basically she was saying that weapons from Shanghai had arrived in Jakarta, right? So these are fake news, but fake news had real impacts, uh, which means that this idea that China was the Dalang or the puppet master of the September 30th movement uh, was deeply instilled uh, in the popular mindset in Indonesia. And this idea that China instigated the PKI to seize state power with military force basically um, made it legitimate. Uh, for the mobilization of radical right-wing forces during the mass killings in 65 and 66 to attack the Chinese embassy, to attack the Chinese consulates, news agencies, right? So these attacks were rampant, or not only in Jakarta, but also happening in other parts, like, for example, in Maidan in Sumatra. And it helped cement the legitimacy of the emerging Soharto regime. That aspect of your research I find really interesting. Like looking through the archives, and I know you spent a considerable amount of time uh, in the in the Chinese archives mm-hmm. that at that time uh, was newly opened in 2013. Um, am I right? Mm-hmm. That declassified a lot of these documents regarding right, China's right. involvement in Indonesia during that time. Can you? Um, I want to move on uh, in a bit later on about sort of the juice of what we're going to be talking about about the ethnic Chinese mm. but can you perhaps tell us uh, briefly about you know whether right. it, whether it is true right like all these um, decades particularly under the new order there's always mm. this uh, assumption that China was you know like you said before um, in a, you know in behind get uh, uh, SPKI that I did was very much under the instruction of chairman Mao etc right, right. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit about whether this is true or not yeah, so that's the million-dollar question, right? If you're yeah. going to talk about China, Indonesia, and the Cold War. And uh, so first of all, I was really lucky to gain access to the Chinese Foreign Ministry archives. So uh, it was open, I think it became gradually open around uh, 2007, 2008, and it closed off um, around 2012. There's just a huge reservoir of materials from lower level day-to-day telegram reporting of what is happening to high level like minutes of conversation. So um, I read everything, for example, um, Joe Lai, the Chinese prime minister is very, uh, he's very much into details and he, you can tell like how China valued the friendship with Sokarno in the sense that uh, the Chinese prime minister could spend uh, hours in communicating with so many people looking for a melon that Sokarno really liked and which was very sought after um, during time of famine in China. But I also read um, 
some of the really high profile sensitive conversation that happened among the leaders. So one of which I think one of the most striking moment was like back in 2007 in Beijing on a spring day, I read like Mao was telling the Indonesian delegation on September 30th, 1965, just a few hours before uh, the gate take of Pluas broke up in Jakarta that he was asking the Indonesian delegation whether Indonesia wants to make its own atomic bomb. Um, so there are so many different ways to interpret this document, right? So one could possibly say like, oh, maybe Mao know exactly what is going to happen and he's very optimistic, right? He's right. basically, yeah, he's basically anticipating the success of the PKI. But you could also say like, given Mao's unpredictable manner, a very philosophical interlocutor when he was meeting uh, foreign guests, it's also hard to say. Maybe he's just referring to like the overall general hope that China-Indonesia will collaborate more closely than they uh, militantly uh, oppose both uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. And the key document I found regarding China's role in the September 30th movement was um, from the Chinese Communist Party Central Archives about a conversation I did have with Mao Zedong on August the 5th, 1965. So at the time, uh, Sukarno was not well. Um, he, right, so he, on the Indonesian political scene, there was much anxiety about whether Sukarno is facing a health crisis right. and what the Indonesia uh, political scene was going to look like without Sukarno. And Mao asked I did exactly the same question what are you going to do? And I did offer a very detailed description of a plan. Uh, which highly resemble what happened in the early morning of October the 1st. Basically, he's saying that, you know, we cannot show our color immediately. If we do that, the enemies will find us, will find out about us, will, and, and they can attack us very easily. Instead, we are going to establish a committee with people from both the right, the left, and the middle. We're going to confuse the enemy. So this sounds very much like the revolutionary committee, right? To those who are familiar with the, um, the historiography of the Gatinga Blue-S. That is uh, significant in the sense that it proved ideal was not an innocent victim, right? As he was portrayed most famously in the Cornell paper by um, Ben Anderson and Ruth McWay. So I did was basically the designer, the architect, or a major willing participant in the Gatikopoulos. But the very fact that he shared with Mao this plan speak to the fact that, you know, how close these two parties were. But I think it also indicated that China was not, like Mao was not the architect of the September 30th movement, right? This is not an export of the Chinese style of revolution because the Chinese style of revolution will be, you know, straightforward military uprising, a village encircled the city. So in terms of method, this doesn't sound Chinese at all. And also in terms of um, capability, right? So um, of course, in the year of living dangerously, they say the weapons from China arrived in Jakarta, but in reality, I don't think it ever arrived. So there were um, weapons deal made on government to government level, mostly it's Chinese government supporting Sukarno in Confrontasi. But um, with 
the available evidence, it shows it's highly impossible any weapon arrived before October the first, nineteen sixty-five. That's really so interesting. The un- yeah. So the under under situation condition of the PKI during the movement also kind of corroborate with this. So this is this is all really fascinating, and it answers mm. a lot of uh, broader questions about mm. you know the nature of uh, the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and PKI at that time, you know, and and all sorts of uh, theories about Mao's involvement um, in the planning, etc. Uh, but let me ask you know more specifically, and this is what you focused on as well. Mm. What was the role of the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia at this time, amidst all this high drama that right. was happening at that time? Right, exactly. So um, I think the overall goal of the book is to bring, um, you know, diaspora and diplomacy together. So to kind of engage a dialogue between scholars of Chinese Indonesian history and scholars of PRC diplomatic history, Cold War history. So. Um, as I mentioned before, China was not the puppet master of the September 30th movement, right? So China's intention was to see the continuation of the alignment between uh, the left-leaning president Sokarno and the Indonesian Communist Party. So in other words, it wouldn't benefit China to see PKI overthrowing Sokarno. And also compared to the Soviet Union and the United States, China had far less capability to to basically exert its power overseas, right? right. So Chinese aid to Indonesian military just lagged far, far behind Moscow and Washington, D.C. So then the question became, right, if China did not engineer a communist coup in Indonesia, why the China-Indonesia alignment just fell apart overnight? Right, so there was extensive cultural, uh, political exchanges between the country. The two countries were so close. Why it just the, all the solidarity built in the past decade evaporated overnight after September 30th movement? And another question is that so harder regime implemented systematic discrimination against the Chinese Indonesia, right? So Chinese Indonesia basically had a a special designation on their national ID card, Chinese language education was banned, Chinese language media was banned. That's right. And the the reason, right, although it's not really explicitly spelled, was that this association with China and accusation China was the Dalang behind the September 30th movement was the reason, right? So the the Chinese Indonesia suffered because they were seen as the proxies of Beijing, who ruthlessly intervened in the domestic affairs of Indonesia, right? So was this true, right? Did the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia were suffering fitting retribution for Beijing's ambition to export revolution? So in my research, I actually found out that um, it was the spontaneous or kind of grassroots activism of the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia that ultimately destabilized bilateral relations, right? So if we're going to look at the communal politics of Chinese Indonesia, starting from the late 1940s, there was not just one China, there were two Chinas. Um, so in other words, the Chinese, Indo- uh, Chinese community in Indonesia was bifurcated along the battle line of the Chinese Civil War, which was between the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party. So after 49, the Chinese Communist Party uh, established the People's Republic 
of China with its capital in Beijing, whereas the nationalist government evacuated to Taiwan and established a Republic of China with its capital in Taipei. So this Beijing versus Taipei rivalry basically dominated the dynamics of diaspora politics. Can I, among the Chinese can I ask there, um, Taomo, because, you know, we know, of course, that Chinese Indonesians, um, you know, even back then were an extremely heterogeneous group. Uh, you exactly. Have, you have yeah. the Chinese who have uh, been in Indonesia for many generations. Mm. You have the Pranakans. Uh, you also have, you know, the, the so-called Totok. Chinese, uh, you know, who predominantly migrated in the in the 19th century during the colonial period, and and therefore relatively newer in Indonesia. Right. You know, the, right. it's been uh, it's been theorized that you know that these more Totok Chinese are are the ones who sort of have harbor more. Um, nationalistic sentiments or at least follow the developments of politics in China and, and exactly. in Taiwan um, more, um, you know, more closely at that time. So, so mm. do we know like those who, you know, like you said before, split between, you know, the, the Taipei mm. camp and the, and the Beijing camp, who are these um, Chinese and, and were they like a small, you know, elite educated minority or what do we know about the ethnic Chinese Indonesians at that time who were interested in this um, in this politics? Right, right. So that's an excellent question. So the Chinese Indonesia is a very heterogeneous, a very diverse community. Um, those who participated very actively in China-oriented politics tend to be more from the Totok community. And of course, this bifurcation between Totok and Pranakan is not as absolute. It's also very fluid. Um, so for those who actively participated in China-oriented politics, they tend to be um, chi- they, they tend to be youth, most specifically youth who attended Chinese language schools in Indonesia. Um, so one of the I guess protagonists in the book um, is Liang Ning. He's kind of a representative figure in this story, right? So he himself is a third generation. Cantonese speaking, uh, ethnic Chinese from Solo, and he attended the Bawa Chinese uh, school in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. And in these Chinese schools, basically, um, the te- many of the textbooks were actually imported from this very extensive publishing network, uh, extending from Shanghai, Hong Kong, all the way to Singapore and Southeast Asia. And many of the teachers were actually recruited directly from China. And some of the some of some of them were intellectuals who went on exile during the Japanese occupation or during the chaos of the Chinese Civil War. So um, the schools were really the main uh, venue where lots of the politics took place. And um, also one of the key figures that mobilized the youth um, is the figure who appear in the cover image of the book, that is uh, Byron. And he spent between 1942 and 1947 in North Sumatra. Um, and he was like a Bernie Sanders of Sumatra, but um, he, he also had, like Bernie Sanders, he has a good following of youth. He's very skillful in youth uh, mobilization. And he has this really strong belief that he's, he's a very faithful Marxist. So he believed that. Uh, class consciousness will transcend racial boundaries. Right. And he he mobilized these youth to basically translate, uh, for example, the left-leaning publications were read 
they read into Bahasa Indonesia. Uh, they encourage them to seek connections with the local branches of PKI or the Malaya Communist Party. Um, but um, he was basically de deported in 1947 by the Dutch authority due to his support for, uh, for the Indonesian Republic. Right. He later returned as China's first ambassador uh, to Indonesia. But he fails spectacularly as an ambassador because he kind of prioritized the mission of spreading revolution to Indonesia using the youth as the bridge of revolution between China and Indonesia. Right. So I think his personal story kind of spilled, kind of symbolized this entanglement of diaspora and diplomacy and how these two cannot be separated. In the aftermath of uh, the 30th of September movement, mm. the ethnic Chinese uh, became, uh, you know, uh, demonized at that time, and, and many mm. also mm. Um, became victim of the anti-communist purge that ensued after 1965. Right. Really, I guess, like the... Uh, the entanglement that you mentioned before uh, of um, not all of Chinese Indonesians, but you know at least a community of mm. of, of uh, ethnic Chinese, particularly those that were mm. pro-China, had uh, I guess negative imp uh, implications uh, for right, the Ch right. ethnic Chinese um, afterwards um, under the new order. Would would it be fair to say that? I I agree. I think um, as so there has been ongoing debate whether. The 1965 mass violence was a Chinese uh, genocide or not? Of course, the earlier generation scholarship corrected rightly the Cold War generation of uh, journalism that portrayed it as a Chinese genocide. But a new generation of research also showed that you know in regions such as Aceh, right, ethnic Chinese were more vulnerable to violence, especially in the late later stage of um, the the. the the mass killings when most of the PKI members and associates have been already decimated, right? And although the 65 mass killing was different from the May 1988 uh, was, but I think it kind of, that was a starting point of the circulation of Chinese being disloyal, right? So it kind of laid a foundation for the mobilization of the perpetrator of the May 1998 wars. So the, the China, what the Chinese experience um, in the 65, 66 was very complicated, right? So in my book, one of the things I found out is that it's really hard to draw a clear line. So for example, one thing that also surprised me is that the pro-Taipei model was anti-communist uh, Chinese in Indonesia mm. actually um, collaborated with the radical Islamic forces in attacking the Chinese embassy in Jakarta or like uh, other PRC representations all across the country. So that's Chinese participating in, you know, violence against China, right? So not all ethnic Chinese were so-called communists, right? And uh, for example, the Taipei agents in Indonesia, they actually donated money to Kapei and Kami, who were basically the main perpetrators of many of the violence against the Chinese in the 65 and 66 killings. So I think the picture is very complicated, but at the same time, 
So going back to your previous question about the diversity of the Chinese community in Indonesia, from the point of view of certain uh, pre-Bumi, so-called pre-Bumi elites or pre-Bumi common people, all these differences were not visible to them, right? So everything, every all like whether it's the pro-Beijing Chinese or the pro-Taipei Chinese, the communist Chinese or anti-communist Chinese, or of course like the, the Indonesian nationalist ethnic Chinese as well, all became exactly sort of, yeah. exactly those who join Indonesian citizenship, those who are strongly advocated for assimilation or integration to Indonesian communist uh, Indonesia Indonesian nation. All these were Chinese, right? It's an umbrella concept that um, just inflated all the differences and all the diversity. I want I want to pick up on that point and like in our last few minutes, uh, talk about uh, the the legacy of this uh, negative perception of the ethnic Chinese that came out during this period, mm-hmm. particularly as you mentioned before, uh, the ethnic Chinese as a whole uh, being uh, ideologically unclean, um, of of being politically problematic right. to the extent that they needed to be assimilated, you know, and and you know this the, this persisting idea that you know until now we still see, um, you know, for right, instance, like right. in the two thousand seventeen um, anti Ahok demonstrations, you know, allegations right, right. that you know politi- Chinese politicians like Ahok mm-hmm. uh, are pro China, etc. Um, you know, as um, as the fifth pillars of China. Um, can you comment a little bit, Talmo, about you know the lasting legacy of um, of you know mm. this perception of Chinese Indonesians as intrinsically linked with um, communist China? Right, right. I think well, Charlotte. First of all, I think I in my book I cited your research extensively on this point, but. Um, I think we'll all agree that in the current climate, um, there is a revival of this this course, right? And uh, and ironically, this new social economic environment we are now situated is the opposite of the Cold War, right? So China is no longer like penetrating Indonesia with communist ideology, but with capital, with the so-called what is that one million migrant workers who are infiltrating Indonesia, right? And ethnic Chinese, um, as you showed in your most recent research, right, they are not like potential communist agent, but they're kind of suspected of colluding with the People's Republic of China to explore Indonesia's whether it's natural resources or to invade the national uh, market. So in other words, I see China's um, kind of economic rise. Um, and also growing presence in Indonesia, especially in light of the One Belt, One Road, is met with both admiration and apprehension. So one um, one thing I, I I think I would like to comment on from from my reading of the Chinese diplomatic document is that this is of course partially the result of longstanding um, legacy, right, of the racial issue starting from the colonial era. But part of it is also the reason how uh, both Beijing and Taipei, both the Chinese nationalist and communist government, carry out their diplomacy, right? So both have long history of um, penetrating the Chinese society in Indonesia. Both had a history of mobilizing the human resources, the capital from the Chinese diaspora to achieve its foreign policy goals. Um, and that really implicate 
the Chinese Indonesia, especially those who had already joined Indonesian citizenship. And uh, I think you mentioned in your research that there is kind of renewed activism of the Totog elderly who had command of Mandarin and started to serve as mediators uh, between the Chinese delegates or Chinese embassies and right, yes. um, yeah, the Indonesian entrepreneurs. Um, they are bridges, but I think this is also a very dangerous water to navigate, right? Uh, it might rise lots of anxiety and fear um, and points of tension. Tomo, I, I feel like we can talk about this all day long and there's so many yeah, aspects of yeah. your interesting research that we've not yet covered. Like, for instance, um, your book also covered uh, the story of um, the ethnic Chinese who actually uh, renounced Indonesian citizenship after the um, dual yes. citizenship decision of 1959. Mm. Um, and, you know, those who left Indonesia and, and, and went to China uh, only to be met with... Um, re-education camps and later on cultural revolution, yes, etc. Yes. Uh, really fascinating history mm-hmm. and um, I wish we could uh, talk more about it. Unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. we're out of time for this episode. Uh, but Talma, let me just say thank you so much again for um, sharing your research and also for um, highlighting such an important aspect of Indonesia's history that uh, is, is mm-hmm. deeply misunderstood and, um, and it's great that you're doing such important work to, to shed more light into it. Okay, thank you so much, Charlotte. Really enjoyed the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was Tamo Cho. She is an assistant professor of history at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Tamo's recently published book titled Migration in the Time of Revolution, China, Indonesia, and the Cold War, published by Cornell University Press, is now widely available both online and in bookstores. Talking Indonesia will return on the 12th of December for our last podcast for 2019. Remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been Charlotte Standy for the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.